Section 1 of Stories from the Adirondacks by Albert A. Young. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. Stories from the Adirondacks by Albert A. Young. Section 1 The Mysterious Lake or the hermit of blue ridge part one discovery of the hermit early in life it was a great pleasure to the writer to ramble in the woods among the adirondack mountains in which i was born and brought up in search of game of various kinds roots oars etc my father was an old woodsman and trapper and this taste for hunting was a natural inheritance in me. Many is the day that I have tramped over Blue Ridge with my gun on my shoulder and my faithful dog Nero at my heels, and many is the evening that I have returned home, bringing with me numerous fine trophies in the shape of animals of the smaller order, birds, ginseng roots, etc. In fact, so much had I traveled the woods through that I began to think there was not a square rod of land in the whole Adirondack region that I did not know the exact location of. But I was yet to learn that I was mistaken. I had often heard my father speak of a tradition that was handed down from the early settlers of the vicinity that somewhere on the top of Blue Ridge there was a lake, the water of which was as clear as a crystal, and contained or rather was running over, with trout of a fabulous size. Many efforts had been made to discover this lake, but all in vain, as the outlet ran underground, and so could not be traced by this source. So thoroughly had I explored the vicinity of where this lake was supposed to be, that I was convinced that there was no such body of water, set the matter down as some old settler's yarn, and if it ever came up as a topic of conversation in my presence, laughed it to scorn. Years passed by. I gave up my old pursuits of hunting and went to New York City, where I secured a situation in the mercantile business, and in the new scenes and experiences through which I passed, I forgot many of my boyhood's happy days, and also about the tradition of the lost lake on Blue Ridge in the land I left behind me. It was only a few years ago that I returned from the city to my old home nestling among the evergreen mountains. Harry Armstrong, who was employed with me in New York and who had become a fast friend of mine, came home with me as my guest. I had not been back many days when the old desire came over me, and I longed to take a tramp in the woods over the ground that my feet had so often trod in former days. I mentioned this desire to Harry one morning, and asked him to go with me for a day's gunning in the woods on top of old Blue Ridge, which was about a five miles walk from my home. Harry readily consented, as he was struck with the novelty of a tramp in the forest, and so we made some hasty preparations, and with our shotguns started out. Before going, 
Harry took care to put in a quart bottle of Mum's Extra Dry with our lunch. Harry, I may add, was rather too fond of this beverage. We passed through pastures in which gentle cows were peacefully feeding, through fields in which the golden grain was waving, and in about an hour's time came to the edge of the woods at the foot of the ridge. Pausing in our walk for a few minutes, we took first a good pull at Harry's bottle and then a look behind us at my home in the distance, and resuming our tramp we were soon climbing the rugged sides of the mountain, looking around us on all sides for birds or game of any kind. As we traveled on, I recognized many familiar landmarks and places which I used to visit in my former trips through the region. Frightened from their hiding places various kinds of small game, banged away at some with more or less success in bringing them down, and when noon came we halted to rest and eat our lunch by the side of a little spring which bubbled up out of the earth. After eating we lighted our pipes and reclining under some sturdy maples, settled down for a few minutes of comfort. It was a day in early September. The sun shone bright and warm, flies were buzzing in the air, and birds sang sweet songs in the branches over our heads. As we smoked away, we began to get drowsy. Soon our eyelids felt heavy, our pipes fell from our mouths, and we were fast asleep. One, two, three, four hours passed slowly away, and still we slept. A fifth had almost passed when I awoke with a start, jumped up, and looked around me. Harry was still sleeping. I looked at the sun and saw that it was hanging over the horizon, lacking but a short time of setting. I looked at my watch and saw that it was getting late. Walking over to where my companion was lying, I grabbed hold of him, gave him a shake and a twitch, which had the double effect of awakening him and bringing him on to his feet. "'Come,' I said. "'Hurry up and let's get started for home. What fools we have made of ourselves sleeping like that, when we are here in the wilderness among bears catamounts, and who knows what else. Many miles from home and the sun almost set. "'I can't help it,' drawled he, rubbing his eyes. "'Where's the bottle?' I assured him that it was safe, and I picked up our duffel and started off in the direction of home, casting, as I went, many anxious glances toward the rapidly setting sun. Harry followed me. We had proceeded but a short distance when, from out of a thicket to our immediate right, there burst forth a large black bear. Accustomed as I was in my youthful days to seeing such sights, I was not much startled. But Harry saw it, and giving a yell of terror, he darted past me and started off through the wood at the top of his speed. I shouted to him to stop, but he heeded not. Fearing he would get out of my sight and lost, I ran after him and tried to catch up with him to restrain him by means of my strength, if not of my voice, 
but on he flew, and in spite of my best efforts I could not overtake him, but managed to keep him in sight. On, on we ran, the pursued and the pursuer, dodging among the trees, jumping over old logs, rocks, and other obstacles in our way, until finally Harry disappeared from my sight behind a clump of alders and small brush. I rushed onward, reached the place where I saw him disappear, parted the brush, leaped through, and came to a sudden stop. At my side stood Harry, trembling with fear and exhaustion, and right before us stretched out, I should say, two miles long and fully half of that distance wide, hemmed on all sides by the unbroken wilderness, was as beautiful a sheet of water as I ever saw in my life. Out on its surface, about fifty rods from shore, was a rough scow boat, and seated in it was an old man, with long gray hair hanging down his back, which was turned toward us, and he was intently engaged in fishing. I stood gazing in amazement at this scene, which had so suddenly presented itself to my view. Where was I? Surely I must be on Blue Ridge, but that body of water? Then it suddenly flashed upon my mind that I had accidentally stumbled upon the lost lake of the tradition of my forefathers. But who was that old man? I spoke to Harry, and he in the boat heard me and turned quickly around toward us, peering sharply in our direction. I stepped out in plain view of him and motioned him to come ashore. He looked intently at me for a moment, and then gathered up his fishing tackle, took up his oars, and commenced rowing slowly toward us. When at a distance of about five rods from shore, he came to a stop, and in a voice of stern authority he asked, "'Who are you who thus trespass on my domain?' "'We are your friends, I trust,' I replied. "'We are from the settlement, and while roaming in these woods we lost our way and have accidentally come to this spot. If you can show us some route that we can take and get back home, we will be very grateful to you.' The old man did not speak until some moments had passed, but seemed lost in thought. When he again addressed us, it was in a gentler tone. "'You are many miles from any habitation, save my own,' he said. "'And the sun is already set. Darkness will soon fall upon the land. Think not of going home to-night, but accept of my hospitality until the morrow.' Then go your way, and forget that you ever saw me or this place. Come, stand not there, but get into my boat and go with me to my mansion over there." And he smiled and pointed across the water. We complied with his request, got into the boat, which, while we were talking, he had pulled up to the shore, and were soon gliding over the water, going in the direction of the east end of the lake. We soon reached our destination, and the old man secured his boat and led the way into the forest. 
we followed and soon came to a cabin among the trees this we entered the old man struck a light built a fire in a rude stove and set to work to prepare some supper harry and myself sat down on a bench built against the wall and entered into conversation with our strange host we saw he was a man of culture and good breeding but very reticent about relating anything of his past life at first but after supper which consisted of venison steak trout cornbread and coffee made of parched corn and which seemed to me the best meal i ever tasted he became more communicative and finally told us the romantic and sad history of his life part two the old hermit's story i was born brought up and educated in the city of new york began the old man there were the scenes of many happy days for me in my boyhood of some sad ones as i advanced in age imagine a lad happy full of life and gaiety having no apprehensive thought other than of happiness for the future living only in the present having a cheery home a kind father a gentle and ever-loving mother and everything that a young heart could wish for such was i at the age of ten years i attended the best school in the city was quick to learn and a favorite with my teachers and schoolmates those were happy days for me oh that we could realize the vast happiness of our youthful days before they are past my father was a merchant downtown well can i remember when but a wee boy of six summers my father took me down to his store one afternoon and there for one glorious half day i sported in great glee among piles of dry goods boxes of shoes hats etc i related my adventures to mother that evening with great gusto and when father came home he took me on his knee and said my little georgie will some day own the store and all the pretty things he saw when papa has gone little did i think that some day would come so soon but so it proved ten years after my father died and i found myself at the age of sixteen heir to his vast fortune my school days were over and i went into the large store left by my father and with the assistance of a manager carried on the business as i grew up accustomed as i was in my youth to being petted and having my own way i began to show signs of waywardness which greatly displeased my manager and brought new grief to my mother at the age of eighteen i was more fond of spending money than i was of earning it i had in fact given myself up to fast living if not actual dissipation i was fond of gay companions of wine the club and ballroom as i handled plenty of money i did not hesitate to avail myself of every luxury my heart desired of course i had many friends as i spent money lavishly and as i was rather comely in appearance i was a special object of adoration among the fair sex 
many is the time at this period of my life that my mother would weep over me and implore me to be a better son and i would for an hour be ashamed and repentant and promise her i would but alas my promise would soon be forgotten in another wild mad rush of gaiety at a rather questionable resort i first met lulu wilson she was i believe the prettiest creature that i ever saw but little did i then know of the deceit and wickedness that lay behind those twinkling blue eyes she fascinated me with them i fell madly in love with her and was delighted to see that she appeared fond of me i took her to balls to the theatre i was constantly by her side i adored her and in spite of the whisperings of my friends that she was a clever adventuress and against the wishes of my mother i married her when my mother heard of our engagement she was very sad and said to me dear george you can never be happy with that woman i have taken pains to find out her history and it is bad very bad i would listen to nothing and so the wedding came off i took my wife home to live with my mother and for a time confined myself more attentively to business, and as everything went well I was really happy. I was always ready to gratify my wife's every whim, and by her advice made many investments to induce larger returns in my business, not knowing that this would surely lead to my destruction. A short time after I became of age, my dear mother was taken violently ill and died before a physician could reach the house. The doctors said heart failure, but I am now confident that my wife administered poison or something which caused her death. By the death of my mother I lost the only blood relation that I ever knew and found myself the sole possessor of a large amount of property. I was by her death drawn more closely to my wife, if such a thing was possible, and was willing to abide by her advice, and she took an active interest in my business. She urged me to speculate, and I speculated heavily. Things took a turn, and I saw that my business and property were being fast involved in debt. My wife urged me to deed everything over to her so I would be safe from creditors until the crisis was past, and things took a turn for the better. This I blindly consented to do. A few days after the transfer, I went home one afternoon to find the house closed and my wife gone. I inquired of the neighbors and elicited the information that she had left the house about an hour before, in company with a strange man. I was astonished at this, and as I stood there wondering, two men came up, took possession of the house, and showed me papers to prove that they had bought it of my wife. I rushed down the street to the police station and asked the chief what to do. He told me I had better hunt up my wife and get an explanation of her conduct. I went on the search for her 
and found that she had, in company with a tall, dark-looking man, boarded a northbound train, having bought tickets for Albany. I also bought a ticket for the same place, and taking the next train was soon speeding northward. I arrived in Albany that evening about nine o'clock, and anxiously inquired of the depot authorities there whether they had seen a couple answering to the description I gave. They had not, and intimated that if I was tracing anybody I had better secure the services of a professional detective. Tired and distracted in body and mind, I sought a hotel and tried vainly to get some rest. Early next morning I went to police headquarters and engaged the services of a detective, and he and I took up the search for my runaway wife. We found that she and her companion had stayed at a hotel in the city and had been driven to the depot early in the morning, where they took a train for Saratoga. The detective and myself followed after. On reaching Saratoga, we found that the couple had alighted from a train there and were somewhere in that city. In conversing with the Saratoga chief of police, I made the discovery that my wife was a former resident of that place, where she had a very bad record previous to her going to New York, and that her marrying me was probably a bold scheme of hers to get hold of my property. Acting upon this advice, I swore out a warrant for her arrest, and officers were sent scouring the city in search of her. I went to a hotel, leaving word that when she was found I was to be notified so I could appear and prefer charges against her. In the afternoon a message came to me that my wife had evaded the officers, and still in company with her male companion, had taken a train going north, evidently bound for Canada. I determined that I would follow her even to the end of the earth and when I found her would shoot her down in her tracks. With this rash impulse, I stopped at a store, bought a revolver, and rushed down to the depot. A train was just about to go. I asked the agent what train it was, and he said, Northbound. I hurriedly jumped aboard without buying a ticket, and off we went. The conductor came around calling for tickets. I told him I had none, and inquired the fare in cash to Montreal, to which place I presumed my wife had gone. "'To Montreal!' he exclaimed. "'You are on the wrong road. You should have taken a train on the Champlain Division. This goes up into the Adirondack Mountains.' You will have to get off at the next station and wait for a train back to Saratoga. About ten miles farther on, the train came to a halt at a small station, and I alighted and strolled about the place, awaiting a return train to Saratoga. The depot agent came out of his office after a short time, glancing sharply at me as he went past and down the walk, which led to the little village nearby. He soon returned in company with a large man, 
who came up to me and asked me if my name was George so-and-so. I replied that it was, wondering who the man was and what he wanted. Then, he said, laying his hand on my shoulder, I arrest you on a telegram just received from New York, where you are wanted on a charge of fraudulently transferring or disposing of your property with intent to beat your creditors and leave the country. Come with me. Not expecting anything of this kind, I was for a moment dazed by this development and made no reply, but mechanically followed the officer as he went back toward the village. But quickly there came to my senses a realization of the bad fix I was in. Disgrace and imprisonment were before me, and sure to be my lot, and all because I loved and gratified the requests of one I trusted implicitly, but who had turned out to be falser than Satan himself. A great fear came over me, and a longing to be free, to flee far away, I knew not, nor cared not, where, only somewhere to get away from these tormenting thoughts that possessed my mind. I could not endure the thought of being a prisoner in the hands of the law for a crime of which I considered myself innocent. Acting on the impulses of the moment, I quickly put my hand in my pocket, drew out my revolver, and shot at the constable before he had time to prevent me. He threw up his hands, and with a cry of pain fell over backward. Then with a bound I left him and ran like a wild deer into the forest nearby. I will not weary you with all the details of the terrible days and nights which followed. Pursued, broken-hearted, and forlorn, I wandered. Going for days without food except wild berries and such game as I could shoot with my small revolver, exposing myself to great dangers from wild beasts, etc., until one day I accidentally stumbled upon this spot, found this cabin, these utensils, and this gun, just as you see them. Who they belong to, I know not. No person has come to claim them, nor has mortal foot, except my own, trod this ground for the many years I have lived here until you came. But here I have lived all alone, musing on the past, an outcast from the society of man, a fugitive from justice, I, perhaps a murderer, and all on account of the woman I once loved. God knows how well. But I am here, and here I must stay until death shall some day find me, and my spirit shall go free to experience in its future dwelling place what? As for you, I will conduct you out tomorrow, but in a manner that will completely blind you as to the route, and I have no fears that you or any other persons will ever find the way to this place. Part Three, Farewell, Dear Hermit It was near the hour of midnight when the old man finished his strange tale, and at its conclusion he arose and went to the farther corner of the cabin, 
where he stretched himself out on a pile of furs which were thrown on the floor and was soon sleeping soundly his hand resting on his gun which lay at his side but harry and myself were too excited with the events of the day to think of sleep so we sat and pondered on what our aged host had told us long before dawn he was astir and prepared some breakfast after partaking of it the hermit took up his gun and started out beckoning us to follow it was so dark that we could scarcely discern our hands before our faces but our guide did not seem to mind this but led the way off through the forest and we by the aid of his voice managed to follow him we went uphill and downhill and downhill and uphill until we thought we had traveled far enough to go halfway to europe as harry expressed it when just as day was breaking we found ourselves out in the clearing about five miles from the settlement here the old man left us and without waiting to receive our thanks beat a hasty retreat in the direction whence we came we resumed our journey and were soon at home relating our adventures to our friends who would not believe a word we told them but said the next time you two go hunting you had better take a smaller sized bottle and then perhaps you will not have to draw on your imagination for an excuse for staying out all night the incidents of which i write occurred some years ago since then myself as well as many others have made repeated attempts to again discover the lost lake and old hermit but without avail and the whole matter is swallowed up in deep mystery seemingly never to be revealed end of section one